Welcome to Podcast Q with Matt Henney. That is me, and I'm recording this on the last day of summer 2020, and seems like the summer and even the year that will never end. But joining me today is Chanel Haley, the Gender Policy Manager for Georgia Equality. Hey, Chanel. Hi, how you doing? Good. With uh, Georgia Equality, which fights for LGBTQ equality across the state, Chanel works on a broad portfolio of issues, including non-discrimination policies and employment, housing, public accommodations, law enforcement, and health care. She got her start in political activism all the way back in 2005, and then a few years after that worked on the campaign of Simone Bell, who was elected to the Georgia House and became the first out black lesbian elected to a state legislature in the country. From there, Chanel became the first trans person hired by the Georgia House and has since gone on to chair the Atlanta's Human Relations Commission, teach trans humility training to scores of agencies, and lecture on transgender issues at colleges across the country. Chanel, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So just a few weeks ago, you were one of 15 LGBTQ delegates from Georgia to the Democratic National Convention. There are about 30 trans delegates from across the country. And the convention went virtual mm-hmm. this year, so you didn't get your trip to Milwaukee to see it all happen in person. But what, what was it like being right. a delegate? It's a little surreal, but also, um, I mean, it was a lot of different emotions. But no, so number one is, you know, you have to really put yourself out there because it is an election. So I was, I had to actually campaign and get votes um, and reach out to people um, to be able to be elected as a district level um, candidate and um, um, delegate. So there was that aspect of it, you know, being vulnerable to be elected to something. And then um, when it really came down to learning that not going to Milwaukee was another issue, uh, particularly since there was a lot of time in there where we didn't know until really two weeks before the actual um, convention. And so there's that aspect. Then um, it's the aspect of really having a really packed day. So on that hand, I'm like, well, this probably is way better because I don't know how I would have done this if I was there and have to do all these, go to all these different caucus meetings. Plus realizing that originally planned that our hotel was really far away from where it was like an hour and a half away from where we were supposed to be, um, where we'd be hosted at. So in that aspect, you know, it was a little better. I could take a nap in between, um, and you know, get some food in and stuff. But there was that. I thought that the negative around the entire convention for me was that a lot of the caucuses were pre-recorded, and so there wasn't a lot of. Um, it wasn't able to do a lot of interactions and do a lot of um, networking with the people that was part of the caucuses. And so I thought that was a, a huge negative, something that you would be able to do in person because I don't join things or sign to do things just for just for it, just to add to a resume. I actually like to be able to work about how to get something done with that. And so I really wanted to meet and engage with people to be able to move um, policies and uh, platforms forward um, throughout the different caucuses. So to me, that was, that was the, the, the biggest negative there. But I understand, you know, health concerns, I would say that the party, particularly the Democratic Party, was really well. They still sent us our swag um, and, you know, our our badge and everything to make us feel like we were still there. And a letter came from the, um, the chair. So they did what they could do. But, you know, trying times that we're in now. What was the swag like? Oh, um, I have, there was, it's a, some teddy bears and some signs, um, flags. <laughs> yeah. 
And so, but you uh, managed to navigate through that and you proposed an amendment to the party platform that the DNC, the Democratic National Committee adopted. So can you talk a little bit about that? There is somebody that is actually the um, only um, trans woman that actually is a member of the DNC. She's an at-large member um, appointed by um, Marissa Richmond. And so she's been keeping track. She was keeping track of, of what trans people or gender nonconforming individuals were actually being elected um, as delegates. And so then she formed a um, trans and um, DN, um, not, um, nonconforming um, caucus. So like you said, it was about um, 32 of us. And we talked about what it is that we wanted to do there was a um, another trans woman that actually was appointed to the platform committee. So that was, again, the first time. That was great. That was the done. And so when she was appointed to the platform committee, she then asked us to be able to submit things or talk about what we want um, within the platform. And so um, going through the proposed platform, I recognized that nothing was in there around the trans community around regarding criminal justice. Um, I thought that that was extremely important that we should talk about that, particularly what's been going on in our country today around law enforcement, um, um, around, you know, um, people of color um, and definitely the trans community. And so that was really important to me to make sure that this was a space that was a, a part of the platform that wasn't touched or that wasn't where we wasn't included in um, where other places we were. And so um, writing that up, submitting it, you know, editing it, sending it back. And then um, finally they adopted the final to where it's pretty broad of making sure that they are conscious of and trying to make sure that the people who work in criminal justice have training on within the community, which I found to be extremely important because um, whether it is, you know, lawsuits that is going through now, um, whether it's about inclusion or even if it is about just being the criminal justice system, that people who work in law really need to be able, whether it's the courtroom and the judges, the attorneys, um, police officers really need to be more um, educated within the community so that they know how to um, move accordingly and be more respectful around um, whatever the case may be that they are dealing with. Yeah, and we're going to talk about some of those issues. I want to, I know you have a background in working with law enforcement, so I definitely want to get into those. Uh, in terms of, of the election and the, and the convention, that sort of leads me to voting and and in Georgia and other places around the country. And in June, it was, you know, basically a big mess uh, or a hot mess. Either, either way, it was a mess. So are you concerned about or have you been working on um, – uh, addressing that and voter suppression and, and looking at those issues uh, with, with Georgia Equality heading into the November election, which now is just weeks away. I'm always um, concerned about voter suppression. The way I always approach that is, is making sure about voting, um, voter education, making sure that other people in the Senate know their rights around voting. Um, you know, so particularly, so my department obviously working with the trans community and um, making sure people are not bullied especially outside of Metro Atlanta. People forget outside of Metro Atlanta, things are very different. So a trans person showing up at a, at a, um, a, a precinct looks very different and the behavior is very different than they do when it's, we're in actually within the city of Atlanta limits, right? Or even somewhere as, um, like Cobb County. It's just, it's just very different. 
because um, it's usually where the community is either not um, used to dealing with trans person and also that they're smaller communities so that they actually kind of know who that person is and they've already shunned them publicly. You know, these are people that where um, when they find out a person's trans, they will take pictures of them and hang it up in, you know, the Walmarts or the parking lots to let people know about this. So it's very um, old school in the sense, you know, way back when, you know, um, there was actually laws against um, same-sex um, couples and being yourself out, out and about. So what I like to mainly point out is what the options are around voting. And a lot of times um, people within the trans and non-binary community like to be able to vote from home by mail. So there's that option. That was an option that was available even before we had the pandemic, absentee ballots. So there's that. I um, let people know that's an option. However, but I also like people to know that they should never, ever, 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 ever allow themselves to be turned away from the polling place, regardless of what the situation or um, reason that they give you to be. Because that's why we have actually provisional ballots. That's part of what the HAVA Act was and to, to, that came about in 2002. And to make sure that, that, that they um, understand and know the rules around that. So the biggest problem, of course, when we talk about doing provisional ballots is that a person doesn't realize they have to do another due diligence where they have to show back up at that um, that county um, elections board uh, um, office and then prove that they actually have a right to vote in there. So elections on Tuesday, that means they have to um, show up by Friday to actually prove that they are actually eligible to vote in that election so that their vote counts. And so that's very important that I know there's people who say, we'll get a provisional ballot, but leave out that last part. In the county, the state is not gonna call to make sure that you know you that you fill that out. So that's what I do mean by I really want people to understand and know around voter education and what it takes for that. You know, and then of course you know in the long run. You know, if we talked about before today about you know registering to vote, which like today is voter registration day, um, uh, which today is September twenty second, and then um, national um, and then making sure that people know when the elections are. You know, like here in district district five, we have a special election. Um, to fill Congressman Lewis's seat, which is actually um, next week, the 29th. So knowing these dates is really important. I always recommend also that if you're able to, particularly, again, for our trans community, is to be able to vote if they can um, in early voting. That way you actually are avoiding um, not just long lines. Um, during this pandemic, it's probably a little safer for you. But then also there is more um, room for error when you're dealing with your poll workers. And you might feel a little safer doing it early voting than when it is down to the crunch time of voting on election day. Well, and that was I was going to ask you about that. I guess one of the uh, you know, there's been an increased emphasis on early voting and mail in voting because of the pandemic. But given Georgia's voter ID laws and things and the problems that might surface when a transgender person goes to a poll and has their driver's license uh, and may not match um, uh, the identity with the license. Are you telling folks that it's better to, hey, like you said, early vote or even or even mail in your ballot? I'm not telling. So I never like to tell people that it's better to mail in because I don't have that much faith in the post office. <laughs> I never have before this even came up. Um, I think that was a major problem that happened in the Abrams campaign because they did that a lot. And then we see how the numbers and how it gets counted at the end. 
But I want people to understand and know that that is an option for them. If that is what they are choosing to do, you should be on that already right now, again, because of how long it's taking now for the post office to be able to handle this. So there's that option. But um, yes, I did mean that when I say show up early for early voting to work on those kinks. Um, but also um, try to get your statement together about making sure that you're able to advocate for yourself within the argument to the poll worker. You know, our poll workers, their training is not that great. Um, they usually, um, unfortunately, um, and we try, but because it's administration, that the poll workers are not trained on how to deal with situations like that when it comes to the trans community. Um, you know, that, that's, not to our, that's not our community's fault. We actually wanted that. They just didn't think it was important to do that. And so because of that, that that is where the problems come about. Um, because technically, if they actually just go strictly by what is in the training manual, and I have read and have a copy of the poll workers training manual, they should already automatically um, offer a provisional ballot instead of turning somebody away, regardless of what the issue is, ID or not. So that is um, something that I like to, again, when educating and telling people to do that. And if you do it in early voting, they're more likely to do it that way. Um, you also gives you more time to be able to then get your information in to make sure that you actually, your vote is counted. So again, I always like to recommend and um, tell people to show up to the polls anyway, demand a, um, a provisional ballot if you are denied, and uh, so your vote can be counted. Well, and speaking of voting and elections, so earlier this month in Delaware, Sarah McBride uh, won her primary and is poised to become the nation's first openly transgender state senator. And there are just apparently just four trans people serving in state legislatures around the country, none in Georgia. And in fact, in Georgia, we have just a single trans person, uh, Dorville City Council member Steffi Kuntz. Are you surprised uh, that, you know, the numbers are so low in terms of state legislatures? No, I'm not surprised. I am not surprised because I think there's a few things that are disconnects when it comes to a general assembly anywhere. Number one, I learned this when I you know worked for Simone, um, Florida State Rep. Simone Bell, is that a lot of people are really just confused about the difference between a, a general assembly, a state general assembly, and the United States general assembly. They get the two really mixed up. And a lot of times when you hear people are complaining about laws and policies that they want, um, they are not quite sure where they lie. So there's that issue, I think, across the board when it comes to people and being interested in being in politics. The second thing is, is um, about when running for office and recognizing how many, how many supporters that you need for certain offices. So obviously when you're doing a general assembly, you need more supporters than you did, we would do for like city council, right? And of course the bigger um, the, the state is, um, then the more people you need. And so getting 200,000 people or a majority in there that want to vote for you in favor of, that means they are educated about what a trans person is. They actually believe in your policies also. You're you're in a district where um, it is it's leaning towards your political party, you know, because these are partisan races. So that's a lot of things that need to line up in order for you to be elected. And so when you are in a minority, in a minority, 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 then it makes it a little more difficult. So I'm not surprised. Actually, I think that that's kind of a high number of what I would um, expect, particularly during this, um, this 
presidential administration that we're in to where there is so many supporters that support that kind of politics that he has been engaged in. So I think we're winning, actually. Any thoughts on uh, how long you think it might be before we have a a trans uh, House member or a senator? I do not know. That was, I guess, my episode plate for that. Um, You know, I I cannot say um, I am not aware of anyone now that has an interest to do so. You know, um, bless their heart if they want to. You know, again, something learning from watching the campaign, being part of the campaigns, um, winning the campaign, and then working at the state capitol um, with former Rep. Simone Bell and several other legislators there, it's it's a lot more difficult on the inside than it is outside. It's very easy to sit there and say, I want to run for office, or when you are, people are constantly, you should run for office. That all sounds very easy, but then actually running the campaign part, you know, raising money, um, speaking to people, getting actual support, that support, all that needs to turn into actual votes, then having to get there and actually battle and campaign and work to get something um, passed. People are constantly judging you, you know, there's the media who's after you, there's people who expect things because you are a member of, so, you know, it's a lot to carry on somebody's shoulders and back, and so I think that and hope that whoever decides to do that knows that ahead of time and realizes um, that it's not going to be easy walk in the park and has the backbone to be able to do that, you know, but... I think also with the right attitude, you know, I say all the time to people um, off record is that to me, the best activists did not go in to be an activist. They usually they just go in to be able to do something that they want it done for themselves. And then if other other people get to benefit from that, then that's a plus. But you can't manufacture an activist or a, a first person. Right. And that, you know, that was over the years and talking to Carla Drenner, who was the first LGBT person elected to the state house and, and then Simone uh, and some of the others over the years. They always corrected me on that. Like you would think that the hard part was winning the election. Well, actually, that's probably the easy part, especially when you're an LGBT person or a female uh, or female or a black female, like you mentioned. And, and the hard part is actually getting there and then trying to pass legislation and putting up with all of the uh, hurdles that are thrown at you, even when you're a state lawmaker and you've already been elected. So how has the pandemic impacted uh, what your work and and preparations and work on the uh, elections this fall? Well, obviously in person. So we, like today is National Voter Registration Day. Usually what Georgia Quad to do is be with certain, um, our table partners, and we would have actually an event um, around the state. But we weren't able to do that um, this year because it's just too much of a liability around um, making sure that we, that there is no um, cross-contamination, that people are still being um, safe. So that's the kind of issue that we have. Um, you know, we are still doing like, you know, the Zooms and putting things up online but, you know, that always poses a problem because there's people who don't have that kind of technology, right? Or who are not engaged with technology around that or, you know, clicking on links or um, just it, it becomes a barrier. You're going you're to miss some people when we are only, only using one platform, one avenue, which is this technology or social media. So that becomes the biggest issue there. Um, also with people who um, are low income, right? I mean, we've seen this right now 
during people going back to trying to go, the kids go back to school and there's some districts and some areas where people do not have the internet access to be able to um, do online schooling. And so that's the same thing that we're doing dealing with right now when it comes to um, voting and voter registration and voter education. So we're trying to do it in all aspects we, we can, um, but, you know, unfortunately there were people, people who be um, lost through the cracks. So it's respons- responsibility on our own time, our personal, if we're out and about, you know, um, we do these things. I know that I like have a face mask that says vote on it. And um, a face mask that says, that talks about, you know, um, your um, women's right to vote. And so when I'm out and about the grocery store, I'll wear those to kind of promote also. But um, definitely technology and the uh, pandemic has kind of um, crippled the access that we have to all different types of people. The other thing that's been going on for months now, in addition to the pandemic, is the racial justice movement. And there's been at least two events in Atlanta calling attention to black trans people. Do you think that have has the movement been inclusive enough or inclusive at all of, of black trans people? And have they been put uh, front and center in the in this movement? So I don't know about front and center. Here's what I know from experience. Most people do not realize and know that I actually am one of the founding executive um, members and administrative members of uh, Black Lives Matter Atlanta. When it was first formed, there was several of us that actually was engaged on over a year and then of creating the structure around it, okay? And part of what was in the tentative there was actually strong inclusion of brown, black, trans women was really included. In fact, there was some people who left because they thought that it was really too heavy LGBT. So I want to say that there's a difference of what people are seeing on television or um, in the streets. There's a difference between Black Lives Matter Atlanta or Black Lives Matter, the national organization, and people who are just wearing the Black Lives Matter t-shirts and marching. Those are different entities. And so I want to advocate and say and and affirm that Black Lives Matter Atlanta, the actual organization itself, which is affiliate of Black Lives Matter National, they actually are inclusive when it comes to the Black trans community. Um, When it comes though to other groups, I can't speak for them because I don't know them and who their organizers are or what what they, who's included in that. But black uh, black trans women is is actually written into the platform around Black Lives Matter Atlanta specifically. Is I mean it says it's in there. You've been involved in, in political work and work at the uh, legislative at the legislature as well, and the protests uh, people I think sort of have their kind of a call for immediate change. But as you know turning those issues into long-term change is, is difficult. So how do you sort of counsel people about turning protesting into political change and how that happens? Thank you for asking that question, because it is something that I say quite frequently, um, you know, protesting is great. Speaking out, your voice is great, but it needs to be a call to action with that. And so there's more to just saying what you don't like or what you think should be. It needs to be written down and it needs to be presented to um, the right people. So what that means is the uh, what is the issue? Who is who does it need to get to? in order for the issue to change and you need to be presented that to them. Um, so going to see your legislator or even marching the streets and saying, you know, we want change. Okay. But 
I need you to write out what the change is and then give the person to the office that actually can make that change. Like, you know, a big problem that like they had again, working in the, um, in the general assembly was we get people call, call in about, well, my neighborhood store has too many cars in front of their lawn. Okay. <laughs> well, um, there's a back and do with that. <laughs> um, you know, you should probably call your city council, your code enforcement, even maybe your mayor, but that office has, we have nothing to do with that here. And that's the same um, issue that we have around when people are, um, are protesting is not making, making sure that they are actually calling out what they want changed and then making sure that that is given um, to their, it's what suggestions, what the suggestion should be. And then that's where the compromise happens. That's really where the politics really come in about the give and take. You know, I'm all for out and in. So like when there's a, um, a group of people outside protesting and they send somebody on the inside to, to do the negotiating you know that that works so um, many times but you've got to have um, some written policies already out the asking of what is that you want to do and be able to be willing to know that this is this is negotiable right kind of your your strong ass you know your your moderate and then the, the bare minimum of what you're willing to accept and understanding that you know that's getting your foot in the door that is making sure um, that the conversations keeps going so you can keep move, moving forward. That's kind of how our entire government has been set up of negotiating back and forth and everything that we have. That's kind of the process that it, it took place. And um, right now is no different. And that's how it usually is always going to be. And I should hope and understand that eventually the people will really understand that and try to move forward. I do know there's people in, in the, in the organizations in the groups who's speaking out who under does understand that and unfortunately um the other voices are louder so we don't know that that's happening but i always encourage people to make sure that it's written down it's submitted to the right people and understand that negotiations have to happen you're not going to get everything you want all the time um actually most time not but to be able to have it in writing and write it down and and one of the 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 centerpiece issues of the racial justice movement is reforming the police, defunding the police and various, you know, various calls for making change, particularly here in Atlanta. So you've attended the Atlanta Citizens Police Academy and have helped train police recruits. How difficult is it to change such a large organization like that? Um, I think that is super difficult. So what is a change is what I support changing is the culture within the um, within law enforcement across the board is what needs to change. A lot of people don't know, actually, the city of Atlanta police officers receive more training than any other law enforcement agency in the state of Georgia. The training is not the issue. Um, the training is top notch. Several of their officers are actually former officers somewhere else, and they don't make the cut during um, during the um, academy because they're doing way more training than they did when they worked for another uh, agency. I think it's great. I, I can't wait to um, that city of Atlanta, as well as other um, municipalities or other um, um, law enforcement agencies open back up their police academies and the ride-along so people can be able to see what actually is happening around there or at least get some kind of idea. So that's great. Doing the scenarios was actually wonderful too because that means, I know as well as for especially being um, a trans person, that when police officers are stopping during traffic stops or, or, or um, 
trying to domestic violence situation or intimate partnership situations that they know how to actually interact. So those are the positives. The negatives, though, is that when you have officers that's been around for quite a while, so pre these new policies that's been in place in these pre-trainings, that, that they are sucking their own ways and they become um, complacent and there is no um, there isn't any checks and balances around that. Police officers, it's, it's a fraternal order, right? And so officers don't want to report on other officers, even when you talk about internal affairs. So that, to me, that's around culture, and that's what we need to change. Uh, we talk about the police um, union, which is not does not have an, um, a bargaining agreement with the city of Atlanta at all. It's, it's a gentleman's agreement. So let's de-escalate their power. Let's get rid, you know, let them know that, okay, we don't have to abide by um, what it is that you're doing with your officers. That's a part of this because the agreement is not um, binding. So there's that, um, you know, them um, be more relaxed in um, making sure that their officers understand and know about humility with the people is something. So again, all that goes back to, again, culture, I think needs to change. Our culture and the change of the guards is the, is the biggest issue around all law enforcement, I would say, across the country. You know, I've just moved down here to Clayton County. I would say it's the same thing here also. Um, I, I look forward to when we're back up and running and that me doing the same thing with them around their academy um, and their ride-alongs that they offer also. Well, and you host, tra- I think it's Trans Humility Training Sessions. Can you talk a little bit about what those are? Sure. Um, so it is actually, um, so it depends on what organization I'm working for, whether it is in housing or in law enforcement or a corporation. So um, all of them is about education, um, pronoun usage, um, terminology, um, around the community. And then I cater, um, it be more specific. So if it's in housing, it's about what the policies are in housing, um, what the city policy is, um, what the federal policy is, um, and then best practices that they should be doing there. If it's in the workplace, the same thing in the workplace, it's more about um, what the you know federal is, state is, and then what best practices are. In law enforcement, the same thing. However, what's added to law enforcement is then also is more about um, messaging and how to be able to interact with the community. And then there's also a media piece in there, too, which, you know, I think the media has done a great job. It actually has changed in the culture. I bring this up all the time when I hear this or somebody brings it up to me when they say, well, what about all the recent, you know, um, um, murders affecting black trans women? And I'm like and I tell people this isn't recent. This isn't new. This has been going on. Ever since I've been transitioned in 1998, I can name and know the numbers have not went up. What is this is that the media has now started, A, recognizing us and then actually reporting on it and then also reporting us as trans women and not MSMs. And so that's what's different now. And so also getting the law enforcement to do that, too, when they're on the uh, on the job um, and show to a scene with um, either intimate um, partnership violence or when there is a homicide there and make sure that they're doing that also. And then also the issues of respect. So that's why it's humility because I don't think a person um, or organization can learn and be um, an expert of a community. So that's why it is a humility training and not sitting there saying that it is some kind of expert training. You've, You've taught that, you've done this course in prisons and jails? That is correct. I have done it. Um, when it comes to the prisons, it was for the Federal Bureau of Prisons here. Um, what is that over uh, McDonough, um, 
in downtown near Memorial Drive. And then um, also with the administrative office. So the administrative office is actually called me first. So if you are actually in a federal prison in Georgia, then when you make a, when as an inmate, when you make a complaint, the complaint is supposed to go to the, um, the administrative office, which is in a secret location around Atlanta. I mean, literally, it's like a building that with no numbers on everything like that. And they didn't even tell me what it was. They said, meet me somewhere out. And then you follow them over there. Okay. For their protection. Um, and then um, then I was called in by um, a psychiatrist that they had there um, who had to put on some programming. And so she brought me in to do it for the staff within inside the actual prison itself. So, yes, I have done it for both of those and then done um, a panel for the law, um, law enforcement training center, um, which is down um, in Savannah also. Yeah. And then, of course, I've been to the city of Atlanta's um, um, police academy and did the um, the scenarios with the recruits on several occasions there, too. And prisons and jails can be particularly uh, dangerous places for for transgender people. So have you, on the trainings you've done for them, have, have, have they been open to what you've you've had to, to tell them? You know, so one thing about almost all of the trainings, they were by request. So not only were they open, um, they was already doing that. Um, so surprisingly, the federal prison was already way on board with assignments for their trans inmates along with their gender identity than it is for the state um, straight prison or um, city or the county jails. That's what took a while to, to come on board with that. And as you see, around the country, some are still not with that. But the federal prison was already there. They actually allowed them to decide on which one they feel more comfortable with. They're aware of that and they're into that. Um, and frankly, I like their way better because in the state um, prisons, there is um, times where they will actually just put the inmate in solitary confinement. So therefore, you're being actually punished twice. You're being punished for the crime that you've been convicted of, but then you're being punished for being trans also for your protection, quote unquote. And so, um, yeah, we've had these discussions and most of them are actually accommodating. So in 2018, you designed a leadership academy for, for trans people to train them to become advocates on, on trans issues. Is that Tell me a little bit about that program, and is it still going on? Yes, it's still going on. I'm in my third year right now. Actually, I did um, one yesterday, and I have one again this Saturday because it's changed over the years. But originally, what was, um, what was presented was to um, train 14 trans men and women, so that's seven trans men, seven trans women of color. I actually had 13 of color um, that was part of the program, and it was to train them on have an advocate for themselves, as you said. So this is a little different. When people think about um, leadership um, and trainings, they kind of think about, you know, like job skills, like typing or something like that, or interviewing, and those are all fine. But I thought that when it came to, you know, living in the South, particularly being a person of color, being trans, that advocating for, self, advocating for oneself is really important. And that comes from my personal experience. So, again, I transitioned in 1998. So I transitioned before those organizations that was advocating for us, that what, where there was no Chanel or a trans person working at any of the LGBT organizations, right? There wasn't any um, housing where I could allow to. You know, I had been homeless before and I wasn't allowed to go into homeless shelters because we're sex segregated. 
there wasn't grants being done, you know, we wasn't talking about the media. So there wasn't any support whatsoever. So everything I had to do, I had to learn on my own to be able to navigate through the systems to be able to survive and make it to where I am today. And I still think that it's an important skill that people need to understand and um, learn because, you know, when it comes to funding and nonprofits and funders, they pick up what's important right then and there. And then, you know, next year, do something completely different. And so I don't want them to be caught. I don't want our my community to be caught off guard that next year or, you know, five years from now, when they decide that, you know, the transparency is no longer a priority, that now it's like, well, what do I do? So that's what I teach around that. I teach around about government so they understand and know what their rights are, um, how to find out what those rights are, what agencies to go through, levels of governments and of how they argue with this. Understanding the history of our community altogether, you know, where we come from, um, you know, what happened, what took place, where and about. Resilience, understanding that even in this administration that we have right now, there are actually trans individuals who are elected to office and who have been way even before, you know, Obama was in office. That um, So to so to know that you, you too can actually make policies um, for the country or for your, um, where you live at also. So that kind of thing. Um, at the very end, I do give them, um, I do bring an actual HR professional to make sure that they do understand of how to do interview and resume writing there. But throughout the entire uh, middle, middle, it was more about that. The first class, we did a policy um, um, book. So I broke it up into um, employment and then healthcare and let them decide on how they want to present that. So one of them was about presenting to um, a university to try to get medical professionals before they graduated from school and these heavy issues about training there for them. Um, and, and employment was to support um, legislation that was actually at the Capitol already around employment protections. And so to advocate for that there. And then um, in the second class that I did, which was a little different because this one where I had seven individuals and I actually this time included two non-binary individuals, that theirs was um, one pagers um, particularly just on employment rights that they did. And then um, both of the classes, they actually got to come up to our um, our Georgia Equalities um, Advocacy Day and do the scenario about how to actually advocate um, with a legislator. So to practice, here's a, here's a good example, here's a bad example of how to do that. And then this year, what I started now um, is that what it was supposed to be, it was supposed to be something... I was very proud of it inside of that was where we had got the funding to actually pay for a actual college credit from um, a university system of Georgia school. But because of the pandemic that the timeline was off and the people that was recruited was not able to get accepted into the school first because you have to be accepted to the school and then we'll pay for that credit. Right. So that's the first part. And the second part is to do the internship with Georgia quality to where everything I just named would then fall into that too. Um, everybody that I talked about and all these programs are all getting stipends because um, I believe that that's important. You know, even the times I set up around it is around stipend. Um, it's important to me. Everybody gets fed. Everybody gets a martyr card because I don't want any barriers for a person to be able to advocate, to learn how to advocate for themselves. So what has happened now, um, what I did yesterday was I've actually now partnered with the um, with a, a Trans Hope House, which is um, a house that was created by A Vision for Hope, um, where it is um, trans women living with HIV. 
and um and South Atlanta, actually College Park. And so since they're quarantined, I just go there and this is my group of people. It is gonna change year round of how many people's in there versus the other two was actual a full year cohort. But with them, they're getting the same information in there too because they definitely need to learn how to advocate for themselves. And then for the one I do virtually on Zoom is all of that actually, but with a um, a higher concentration because the three women that are in that one actually are already part of the community and already have been doing some of the work. So it's kind of taking them to the next level about how to advocate um, with the lens of and from politics on it. And that was funded through a $200,000 grant. Where, where did that come from? That's correct. It is funded through a $200,000 grant from Wellspring. So that's 100000 per year, though. Yes. And the funding is continuing now? So- yes. Yeah. This is So this new grant started this year. Again, like I said, the, this year was rewritten differently around the schooling, the college credit. Um, because of the pandemic, they've allowed us to change it up. And so right now, until January, I'm going back to the same abbreviated model, you know, with breaking it up and doing two separate, one virtual, one in person. But hopefully in January, when things are healthier, we can go back to what I really want them to do is to actually get the college credit because um, there's a lot of people who don't go to college or haven't been to college because they just don't know what to expect, can afford it, don't know what it's like, whatever. So if they can have the opportunity to actually take this and get that one credit at least on the record, something that they can keep forever, right? That to me, that seems like way more valuable, way more valuable than the stipend that they're getting. Well, Chanel, my last question for you is where can people find you and follow you and find out more about the work that you're doing? Well, you can always find me at Georgie Quality. I am, um, you know, on the website, um, read about me. And then of course, contact me. That is the fastest and easiest way. Um, Right now, I personally am not working within the office um, for the rest of the year. So I'm always going to be faster to respond versus uh, on email, which is at Chanel at GeorgiaEquality.org. That's C-H-A-N-E-L at GeorgiaEquality.org. You also can find me on Facebook, of course. You know, I actually run the Transaction GA um, Facebook page. I am the person that usually you will interact with if you send a message there. That is the... Facebook page that has to do with everything that transgender and um, do not conforming um, on that's affiliated with Georgia Quality. So if I have something going on, I want to let people know about it. I usually will send it out through there first versus my own uh, personal page too. Please sign up for that. I don't post a lot, so you're not going to get a whole bunch of posts that you don't want. Like as I said, that annoys you. But um, please sign up so at least you can find out what's happening. Thank you, Chanel. I appreciate your time. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Subscribe to Podcast Q to keep up with new episodes and follow us at theqatl.com. And see you soon with a new episode. Thanks again, Chanel. Thanks, Matt.